have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. Oh boy, it's been... It's been a week. Uh, I'm sorry this is coming out a little late. I had some landscaping gigs that I did this week because I'm still not making a lot of money playing accordion. Uh, surprise! (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny to me. But I've still got an episode for you this week, and uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to share it. Uh, something happened. Pop culture. I don't know. Uh, there's stuff. I finished watching Breaking Bad. There, I finally saw the show that everyone was talking about eight years ago. And you know what? It's still really good. Uh, so that's a thing. Breaking Bad, still good. Water wet. Politicians philander. Anyway, uh, that's enough about current events. Let us speak of them no more. Let's do a show. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less including these 11. Who imposed this rule? You want it darker. This Leonard Cohen album was the final one released during his lifetime. It is a phenomenal record, despite being recorded at home while Leonard was suffering from some intense health problems. Each individual song stands on its own while still contributing to the overall flow of the entire project. I'm hard-pressed to think of many other albums that I feel that way about. While the tone is certainly shifted toward the bleak, a feeling aided by the often sparse instrumentation, there is a dark beauty here, too. It is impossible to say what was going through Cohen's mind as he wrote and recorded these tunes, but I feel like part of him knew that they would be among his last. Leonard has always meant a lot to me, often for reasons I will not disclose, but one reason does loom larger for me. Cohen does not have a great voice, something I myself have always struggled with, and yet he created beautiful songs. That understanding of his own abilities and their best use is on full display here. This is night driving music. Here's what I've been reading. The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. This is a book about Benedictine monks. Kathleen Norris is this odd writer who's very popular in some Christian circles. Although I wonder if she might not be popular outside of Christian circles as well. She was a poet and writer in New York in the art scene in sort of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, through the 70s, actually, and just sort of was kind of a, a artist in New York and then ended up moving to South Dakota, to Northwest South Dakota. I like that combination of words. And she moved into her grandmother's house after her grandmother passed away and ended up getting really into sort of engaging with a lot of aspects of ascetic life so not just monasticism but 
sort of the ideas of like acedia and living sort of off the edge of the map in a lot of ways which i i think that's the kind of thing that happens when you live in northwest south dakota cloister walk is i believe her second book her first book was dakota uh a geography of the heart, a spiritual geography, something like that. I've read Dakota as well. I Her prose is really good. I mean, she's a poet. It reminds me a lot of, oh, I can't remember the author's name now. There's a book I read a couple of years ago called The Undertaking, which was a book written by a poet who is also an undertaker. He's a, that's his, his professional undertaker, and he writes poetry. Oh, I need to not record these in the morning. I'm still waking up. Yeah, so she her prose is is very lyrical, very beautiful, and she's sort of writing about this encounter with monastic life. She, she's been invited to stay at all these monasteries and write about the lives of the monks, and I, I, I don't think it would come as much of a surprise to any of you listeners that I'm interested in the monastic tradition just because I like to spend time alone working on projects and sort of thinking about stuff. I've often imagined that one of the ancient Greeks, you know, like like Aristotle or, or or Plato or Socrates, well, maybe not Socrates, but they would have a podcast and it would just be called Think About Stuff. Because I feel like it's amazing, you know, you read about the ancient Greeks uh, and they're, they're, they've got that whole, you know, they're just sort of like, the things that they come up with just out of observing with their eyes is amazing, you know. Uh, I just read Richard Panic's The The Trouble with Gravity last week, and he talks about how, the I think it was Plato, figured out that the world was round, and it was all based on things that he could just see from, like, where he was hanging out. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, um... The Earth, the Earth's shadow. I'm yawning so much. The Earth's shadow on the Moon during an eclipse is round, and when ships come up uh, over the horizon, it, it's like they're coming up over a hill. So the world must be round. The end. You know. And now we've got a bunch of goobers with laser pointers being like, "It's not round. It's a whatever." Um, but. <laughs> It, it's it's just it's 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 fascinating to me that the ancient Greeks could sort of just think things through and come up with concepts like atoms or the world being round without like you know all of our laser pointers and stuff. But Kathleen Norris is engaged with this entirely different world. It's this idea of living a separate or different or intentional life. You know, it's it's something that we always associate with religious practice, but it's something that I think successful people in a lot of different fields engage in. It's an idea that was explored by Neil Stevenson in his book, Anathem, which I can't remember what year that came out, but uh, Neil Stevenson's Anathem is this big F-off book. It's, it's like, I think it's like 1,400 pages or something like that. It's, it's huge. That thing's huge, man. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's this idea that 
instead of religion being the thing that everyone went and cloistered away for, it's mathematics. And so what kind of world does it produce when all of your mathematicians go and form cloisters? And that's the kind of stuff Norris is writing about, about not only religion, but what type of people, what type of society do you produce when you live at one level of remove? And, you know, this is an experiment that's been tried in many cultures across the globe. So it's, it's really fascinating to hear, uh, sort of this, these perspectives get created. But one of my favorite anecdotes from the book is that during the early 20th century, like in the 1920s, young people from failing farms would just join monasteries because uh, they, you know, that that was a way that they could eat, right? And these young people who'd grown up in these like backwoods farms, you know, sleeping on the floor or sleeping on like a hard bunk, go into monasteries and find that there are like mattresses and sheets and pillows and things. And it's an indescribably luxurious environment for them. And I just find that so funny. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. Here's something I've been mulling. What do you really want? For the past couple of years, I've been in a kind of holding pattern in my life. This has made me realize that the way forward is often a matter of deciding what you really want. I admit this is hardly the most original thought I've ever had, but I hope you'll indulge me. After all, one of the reasons I write these essays is to allow my mind to process things. It gives me a chance to work out alternatives and think out loud. After all, what are you, dear listeners, if not some kind of extension of the mind of the universe as it contemplates itself? I swear I'm not high, but reading that sentence back, I wonder if perhaps I might need to get some kind of scan performed. <laughs> anyway. A few weeks ago, I had a long chat with a friend who is going through an unimaginably difficult time. He is dealing with things I cannot even begin to put into words. If the forces arrayed against him were active in their malice, it would be one thing, but most of his torment comes from repeatedly falling through the cracks of systems with more inertia than sense a Kafka-esque nightmare with no discernible relief in sight. Despite all of this, my friend has elected to fight back. Somehow. Our conversation began as a discussion of options, ways to influence and affect the systems and individual people he is dealing with, who are causing harm. No matter how far we ranged, I found we kept looping back to the same fundamental question. In the face of all this opposition, from his community, from the systems around him, even from some of his friends, I kept wanting to grasp him by the shoulders, look into his eyes, and ask, What do you really want? In other words, what is he hoping to get out of this situation? If he is going into battle, what is it he hopes to accomplish? I have friends all over the world who have passionately devoted themselves to causes, to ideals, to individuals, but I feel like their agency in these quests is lost. If all you want is to become mayor, you're not going to be a good mayor unless you spend some time thinking about what you want to do should you ascend to the post of mayor. Just think about Peter Jackson, director of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies. 
PJ spent his entire life conceptualizing how he would realize the Lord of the Rings, from the largest battles to the smallest conversations. This was further aided by nearly a decade of more specific research and development of almost every kind of filmmaking technique. Peej had a plan once he started making the thing. Now, compare this with the Hobbit trilogy. PB&J was brought in last minute after the exit of Guillermo del Toro, with less than six months to prepare. Jackson was suddenly up to his ears in Middle-earth again, not only trying to figure out how to adapt the book, but also facing the pressure of a studio who wanted not a simple children's story, but an epic prequel trilogy. I don't need to tell you how that worked out. Jackson did not know what he wanted to do. What do you want? With increasing regularity, I find I am posing this same question to myself. When I feel angry, unheard, ignored, hurt, frightened, lonely, heck, horny, whatever, I've begun to pause and query the meandering corridors of my own internal landscape to ask, what is it you really want? Sometimes, if I manage to be honest, the answer surprises me, but even more often, the answer fails to materialize entirely. Of late, this question has become ever more important to me. There are days I lose track of time, lost in thought, the question running through my mind like a mantra. This increase in importance of the question may have something to do with the fact that I have intentionally stuck a stick through the spokes of my life. This has been going on for almost three years now, well before the global upheaval of the worst pandemic in living memory ruined everyone's daybooks worse than a week in the litter box. Two and a half years ago, I walked up to the admissions office in my hometown university and began to engage in the bureaucratic processes necessary to resurrect my derelict academic career. I would take two years off from the majority of my regular pursuits as I finished my university degree. This would give me time to sort through things and decide what I wanted to do next. The seeds of this change had been planted several years before when, through a series of circumstances I am still not wholly comfortable talking about, I had to confront something about myself. In her 2020 chapbook, We Will Not Cancel Us, Adrienne Marie Brown talks about the complexities facing communities seeking to address the actions of their members who have hurt others. There are, quote, survivors who receive harm, those who cause harm, and the majority, she writes, who do both. In a situation where I was already dealing with the tremendous pain of coming to grips with the moments in my own past where I had likely done harm, an even more difficult truth crashed down upon me. I was also the recipient of harm. With this realization came a wave of feelings, followed by a flotilla of questions carried on the rising tide of emotion. How had this happened to me? Had I put myself in those situations? Was I in the wrong place at the wrong time? What did it say about me, about my identity, about my place in the world, if I was actually an unknowing victim of some of the worst kinds of harm I could imagine? After a time and many conversations with dear friends, I was able to come to at least one realization. While diagnosis can bring with it a kind of peace, it was a far cry from anything like an explanation. Nevertheless, this particular realization did at least give me a sense of the vague direction I wanted to aim my sailboat in. Simply put, I had realized that I was often not an active participant in my own life. Like my obsession with the question that opened this essay, this realization may not be the most original piece of thinking, but 
When I finally allowed myself to openly think it, it felt like I could breathe for the first time in years. Thousands of moments, stories, entire relationships, journeys across oceans and continents all leapt into stark relief. I had not been an active participant. I had been little more than a hapless sidekick dragged along by the inertia of something I had never consciously created to begin with. My exuberant embrace of life with nothing but yes in my heart had led to a wallless prison far stronger than any physical confinement. I think this all began the month I turned 19. I was living in Los Angeles, attending Biola University. <laughs> Biola. A friend of mine once said that Biola, which stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, my friend said that Biola sounds like a southern woman who's going to cook grits. Um, like, Biola going to make some grits. I, I don't, like, it's just a funny sounding word, Biola. And, like, the fact that they pronounce, like, anyway. Like, maybe Biola. I, it, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I had blown off acceptance in a competitive financial aid package to a much more prestigious East Coast Ivy League school to attend a mid-tier Christian university. This was because at the time, my parents had said they would only help me pay for school if it was a Christian college. Biola was one of the few available that also had a film school known for producing graduates who actually made movies I had heard of. Among them, Scott Derrickson, director of The Exorcism of Emily Rose and later Doctor Strange. Biola seemed like the ideal compromise between the pursuit of my dream of writing films and my parents' desire that I continue to live in an alternate reality that question science. Ironically, what little I remember of my freshman biology course at Biola ended up being the final nail in the coffin of any lingering belief I had in creationism over evolutionism, but that's another story. I did not do well at Biola. Did you need that information? <laughs> While I made friends, enjoyed activities, learned a few things in my classes, and was a surprise guest on the Megan Mullally show, again, story for another time, I also discovered the joys of getting high, and perhaps even worse, got deeply into the then-new world of Warcraft. By the end of the semester, my grades had plummeted, and my attendance at class was sporadic at best. Somehow I managed to do well on my exams, but I was not eager for more. LA had not been kind either. The city was loud, unfriendly to cyclists, my preferred method of travel, and everyone I met from the film industry was either jaded, sad, or angry for reasons I still do not understand. In light of the above, the fact that I decided to drop out at the end of the semester and return to Bellingham is not too surprising. But the reasoning for the actual decision might be. A good friend from high school, himself attending college out in New York, had also decided to drop out. All of his reasoning made tremendous amount of sense to me, and so I decided I would drop out too. My choice was not one that I had arrived at through my own reasoning, my own desires, my financial concerns, or even my own attempts to avoid something that I found unpleasant. Sure, those were all things I could recite to anyone who asked, and boy, my parents did ask, but none of those reasons were really true. The real reason... Something I can only be wholly honest about now, writing this 15 years later, is that someone else was doing it, and I decided I would do it too. <sighs> I have just revealed to you, dear listeners, 
one of the great dark secrets of my origin story. I know there are people out there who are amazed that I had the gall to wake up one morning and decide to be weird, or however you want to put it, but the truth is far less exciting. Someone else suggested it to me, and in a move that would define my 20s, I said, sure, why not? In fact, for years I've joked that the title of my eventual memoir, coming from Penguin Random House Fall 2031, would be, why not? I love those two words. Even now that my perspective has begun to shift, I still keep them in my pocket like a well-loved penknife. Whenever I apply for a festival, send a writing sample to a university, or walk into a thrift store, I whisper those two words to myself. As a child, my father told me the story of a philosophy professor handing out an exam with a single word at the top. Why? A student wrote, my father continued, merriment in his eyes, why not? The student supposedly got an A. And yet, is that the best way to respond to life-changing decisions? I can't count the number of times that something has been suggested to me. A night with a person, a trip to another country, a festival performance. And my reaction has been, why not? Why not? Why not? I sometimes wonder how many moments in my life would have turned out differently had I flipped a coin instead. Not out of some sense of regret, but just the simple curiosity of wondering how things would have been different if I had been even a little less passive about so many things. What often manifests a stubborn commitment to moving forward, a bullish energy to make something happen or get something done regardless of consequences is actually just me having picked a course, usually at random, and then following it, even if it hurts me. As a result, I have a tendency to just say yes to whatever nonsense other people propose. This has resulted in me having a reputation as a free-spirited bit of nonsense rampaging through the world. In fact, I think some people see me as some kind of chaos agent, always causing whimsically infused havoc wherever I go, but the question of how much of this nonsense is actually me has plagued me for years now. How much of this is because I actually want it? There are as many conceptualizations of how to be a good person as there have been people. Actually, scratch that. There are more conceptualizations than there have been people. Since it is a rare person who settles on just one and holds it for the entire span of their days. There is one that has stuck with me, though. It's the concept of fake it till you make it. Choosing to do what you think a good person would do in a given situation. The hope is that by the time you encounter a real test of your moral fiber, you'll have developed good behavior as a reflex. We often hear of exceptionally good people making difficult choices, sacrificing their own lives, say. It is often the result of a lifetime lived with self-sacrifice at the forefront. Rarely does such a good moment come at the 11th hour, although it does make for good storytelling to see a Darth Vader turn good, or a publisher decide to stop this nonsense and quit printing Game of Thrones books. Okay, that might be a fantasy, but honestly, we can dream, right? Anyways, it's about choosing to be a good person. In a million little ways, for years and years, and eventually you get to the point where your goodness is just a reflex. 
That's how it's been for me in the rampaging shit show that is my traveling, whimsical nonsense life. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I have enjoyed most of my life. I have treasured the experiences, the sights, the friendships, and even much of the difficulty. I usually don't mind that people see me as an unknown quantity of chaotic good. I hope good. Maybe just neutral? To say I have been privileged to lead a remarkable life full of adventures that often beggar the imagination isn't too much of a stretch. So please hear me when I say I love my life. But that does not always mean I like it. This is really hard to put into words. But this brings me back to agency. If my default option is to always say yes to whatever nonsense comes along, is that actually a detriment to me in the long run? Is that actually a choice at this point? I may have a bushel basket full of adventures, but I don't have dental care. One of my teeth really hurts. I just try not to think about it. Sure, I'm in basically good health now, but if anything were to happen to me, like I said, I just try not to think about it. The reflexive yes has its benefits, but it also has its downsides. On countless occasions, it has landed me in situations I should not have been in. Most of the time, I manage to be clever or, more often, lucky enough to get out of them, but a few times, and these are the ones I alluded to earlier, I have ended up in harrowing places, alone and friendless. Sometimes on the receiving end of things, it has taken me years to process, let alone accept. Which makes me wonder... What do I really want? What is this whimsical, reflexive yes for, if not to bring myself and those around me joy? When I put the question to my friend in the midst of his troubles, he did not have a good answer. I do not have one either. But I have found a few things that seem to be pointing me in a better direction. First, while I cannot say for sure what I want, I can say a few more things that I do not want. This has begun to allow me to say no to some things, to stop the overpromising, the compromising, and the leaps into dangerous and harmful places that end up tearing into my body or soul. Second, I have learned that through my own experiences facing horror, I can build far greater empathy for the people around me who have their own demons to face. Finally, the more I open myself up to accepting what has happened to me, allow myself to feel the things I feel, and ask myself the difficult questions, the closer I think I am to the moment where I can hopefully understand what it is I do want. I just hope it's not too late to be the protagonist in my own life. I need more coffee. Song of the week. Whew. I've, uh, thank you all for getting through that essay with me. That was uh, some of the most honest I think I've been in about a lot of things on this podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is... <sighs> Let's have a bit of a palate cleanser with this song then, shall we? This song is called... You know, I'm not even going to tell you the title of this song. You'll hear the title a lot of times during, during the chorus. But... Uh, I was on a Zoom meeting with a producer friend of mine, and he did a screen share. And on the screen share, 
I could see his his uh, web browser was open, and I could see the tab, uh, his email tab. So you know, just you know, this is just your your weekly service announcement, folks, that uh, people can see. Anything you have open on your computer when you do a screen share on Zoom. It happens. So, uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. This is a brand new song I wrote this week. And, uh, I don't know if this will be funny to anyone but me. But here we go. <laughs> Here in our town, his festival gives us joy. He's got an open heart, you know, his songs are the real McCoy. But the other day on Zoom with him, my jaw dropped to the floor. Cause seeing his email inbox made me want to run right out the door. He's got 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails. Leave the man alone. Wonder it's hard to get a hold of him. You're lost in a pile that big. Though I can't blame those bands for trying, cause this is the sweetest gig. I'd like to believe he's gonna get back to each and every one. But whenever I stop to contemplate the chore, it doesn't sound like fun. He's got 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails. Leave the man alone. How is he still so nice that I've crumbled long ago? Just imagining trying to deal with that, I'd be a puddle on the floor. Unless you think I'm kidding, this ain't hyperbole. I've stared into the abyss, my friends, his email stared back at me. Got 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, leave the man alone. He's got 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, 27,000 unread emails, leave that man alone. Leave the man alone. mailbag. I'm home. I'm in Bellingham, Washington. I'm back to working in my studio. So you can send messages, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, old taxidermy, your grandma's lace doilies, whatever, to strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 11, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're a supporter of this podcast on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. You folks are literally the only income I have right now. So, you know, other than picking up a little landscaping work here and there, you're feeding me. And I can't begin to thank you enough. I, I, I... 
ate a fried egg for breakfast this morning thanks to you. And I, I thought of you as I fried it. So thank you. Especially thank you to my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. You make the podcast go around. Uh, if you're not a supporter of this podcast yet, you can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this podcast. And as a special thank you to Patreon supporters, I've started posting my scripts for these episodes so you can see what bits of weirdness were intentional and what just happened. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Deucebar. Well, that's it for this week's episode, folks. Thank you so much. I'll see you all in a week. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.